You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. This morning, I don't need to spend any time or tell you stories to convince you that we're living in divided times. That um, there's a push in this culture to divide all of us. Are you left or are you right? And for there to be a big gap between us. We, we rarely see a vote that doesn't follow the party line. And, and the thing that's crazy about it is that, is that both sides think the other side's crazy. Both sides think the other side is intolerant. Both sides think the other side is dangerous. Both sides think the other side is the one to blame for the division. My concern is that Christians are following this same mindset. If you don't believe me, just log on to Facebook and see what, what many Christians are saying. I believe they're saying what they think would be helpful, but I doubt that we're saying very much that actually helps people to see their sin and to see the waterfall of grace that's offered in Christ. Which means that I believe that we need to sit at the feet of Genesis chapter 16 another week with a pen in our hand and a heart that is eager to learn. Um, but I think we also need to think about this text for other reasons. If you look around in your neighborhood, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see that a lot of your neighbors aren't doing well. A lot of your neighbors are lonely. A lot of your neighbors are scared. They're scared of getting this virus. They're scared of their, of their elderly uh, loved ones getting this virus. They're worried about their jobs, they're worried about their kids, and, and, it, and it seems like a lot of people would just think they'd feel better if they could find somebody to blame. And I want to submit to us that, that the answer is not us lobbing self-righteous truth grenades at our neighbors. We want to do good. We want to do real good. Can I remind you that we are called to do good? Listen to this, Luke 6. Jesus says, do good. Acts 10 says that Jesus went about doing good. Hebrews 13 says, let us not neglect doing good. We want to do good for people. What, not just what feels good. Because there's lots of things that Christians do that feels good and makes us feel good for doing it, but we're not actually doing real good for people. We want to do good for people, which I think means we need to sit down and listen humbly to Genesis chapter 16. But I think we also need the message of Genesis 16 even closer to home. I want to just give you one example. And I don't know if this makes any sense, but sometimes, sometimes it happens with me with anger. It's like 
It's like I'm watching myself from the outside getting angry. Does that, does that make sense? Do you know what I'm you know what I'm saying? You feel yourself getting angry, and it's like you're just watching this explosion take place. And you're just, you're just a bystander watching you go for it. Sometimes I feel like I, I make it so that in my home, my children feel like they're walking or, or riding on a seesaw. Sometimes, you know, I, I'm gracious and kind and patient. And then other times, I'm super strict. And... I hate that. I I, I never want my kids to say, I I wonder which daddy I'm talking to right now. I wonder if now's a good time. I want every time to be a good time to talk when they need to talk. So here's what it tells me. I need to sit down and listen to God's wisdom from Genesis chapter 16. Let me, let me read it for us. And I know I keep coming back to this passage. Um, I think there's still good here for us to think about. Genesis 16. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. So Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarah treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from? And where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone. And everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, I have even remained alive here after seeing him. Therefore, the well is called Ber Laharoi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do what you love to do. And take this word, not just teach us, 
but transform us with this word so that we would be like Jesus. That he might be honored and that the world and our families may be helped. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, and really for the last couple of weeks, we've, we've tried to go through this passage verse by verse that we might explain this passage. But what I want to do today really is work to apply this passage, to help you to apply this passage. And specifically, what I hope that we see in this text is, is that we have a call to imitate God by relating to people with a heart that is full of both grace and truth. Justice and mercy. Conviction and compassion. And so our outline, three things I want us to see. First, I want us to see God's character. I want us to see our calling. And then finally, I want you to see this means for us one serious challenge. We want hearts that are full of grace and full of truth. Let's let's start with grace. Where do we see grace at work in this passage? Where do we see God pouring out grace upon his people in this passage? And let's just begin with Hagar. Where do we see grace at work in Hagar's life? God comes to her. And and the Bible makes it clear. He didn't just come to her. He already knows where she is. But the Bible says that the angel of the Lord found her. He went seeking for her. He sought her. That's grace. This This is a slave girl. This is a slave girl that has been rejected by her first owner when Abram got her. But then also now rejected by Abram and also with Sarah. And she's not just a slave girl. We see from the text that she's a disobedient, prideful slave girl. But God runs after her. And his heart is revealed because we get to see, for example, like in verse 11, that he ran after her because he cares about her. Because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. We said this last week, but it's just good for my heart to hear again that God sees. Can you imagine God Almighty, the one who measures the heavens with the span of his fingers? He cares about the cries of this forgotten slave girl. The reason Moses told us this is because he wants you to know that God cares about you. He hears your cries. We see grace in this story in that that here's a slave girl. She's promised a son and he's not going to be oppressed the way she was oppressed. We have a son who is going to be blessed. This is a a son that should have never been born. This is from a marriage that should have never taken place. And yet, look at verse, chapter 17, verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him. Where else do we see grace? 
Where do we see grace at work in God's dealing with Abram and Sarah? Let me ask you this. What, what, what is Abram the adulterer? And Sarah, the one who takes matters into her own hands because she trusts herself more than she trusts in God, what do they deserve? But look at what they get. Look down to verse 6 of 17. I will make you, Abram, exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And these are the best words ever to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Verse 15, then the Lord said to Abram, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarah, but Sarah, because shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come forth from her. The reason I want to look at this again is because I don't want what this text reveals about God to just... Just bypass us. Oh, we get it. God is full of grace and truth. Okay, okay, let's move on. I have to remind myself constantly that God's disposition toward me is one of grace. When I fail, I need to be reminded over and over and over that His disposition toward me is one of grace. He loves His children. According to His own self-revelation in Exodus 34, He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and I love this word, abounding in loving kindness. The Bible goes so far as to proclaim to His people that the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Isaiah 30. Therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. We need to get that. We need to write this down on the doorposts of our minds. I often say, I want this tattooed on my heart. Because I want to be reminded of it over and over and over again when life is hard and sorrows like sea billows roll so that I'll believe it and I'll rest in His grace. Our God is full of grace. But I want you to notice that's not the whole story. If we left it there, we'd get a warped view of God. This text reveals other things to us about God. When, when, when most people get that God is full of grace, when those lights come on, they love it. But there are less convenient things, still good, but less convenient things about God in this text. And that is that when we're dealing with sinners... Unbridled grace normally doesn't help them. Sinners need grace. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Sinners need grace. But sinners also need accountability. We are so prone to error. And we are so good at justifying our own sin that we need constantly to be confronted with truth. We need corrective wisdom. 
And that's what's amazing to me in this passage is how God responds to Abram's and Sarah's and Hagar's sin with a perfect symphony of both grace and truth, mercy and justice, accountability and compassion at the exact same time. It's amazing at the wisdom of God in this passage. Like, notice, at the exact same time, do you see God's justice in this passage? Like, like, think about this. Does Abram get exactly what Abram wants? I just want Hagar to be gone, and I want peace in my house. No. Abram, for years, literally, his descendants, for thousands of years, have been having to deal with the consequences of his sin. Does Sarah get exactly what she wants? I want to be done with this Egyptian. And I want to be done. I want to just forget about her. And I want her out of my life. No. What happens is, not only does Hagar have to come back and live in her house. But Sarah's descendants end up being oppressed by Egyptians. Hagar doesn't get away scot-free. She comes back to a master that's that's wicked and mean to her. It's not comfortable. It's not, con- not convenient. But God uses all those things to do good things. And justice is served. So here's what I'm saying. This text reveals to us what our God is like. This text reveals to us His character. And, and, and I hope that you want with all of your heart to know Him. Because here, we are masters at manufacturing a version of God that amazingly looks a lot like us. The version of God that we tend to manufacture in our minds tends to have our same convictions. Say it, Daniel. This is why we need to open this book. With a heart that wants to know the real God as He really is and then to follow Him. And and if anything is made clear in Genesis 16, it's that our God is a God who is full of grace and truth. Listen again. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And let me read to you the rest of it. And truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Listen to Jeremiah 18. So now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you. Now, again, some people's view of God, they have no room for that. What do you mean? God is fashioning calamity against His people? Yes! I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. But listen to His heart. Oh, turn back, each of you from his evil way, and reform your ways and your deeds. John 1 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full 
of grace and truth. If there's any doubt, there's nowhere where the heart of grace and justice are seen more clearly than we see it at the cross. What do you see at the cross? You see a man who the Bible says has his face so bashed in that he's unrecognizable. We see a man who has wounds, wounds from thorns, wounds from rods, wounds from fists, wounds wounds from spears, wounds from nails, wounds from his back going up and down on a wooden beam. What would you see when you see the cross is you see this is what God thinks about sin. He hates it. He abhors sin. And yet, in the mystery of God, at the exact same time, on that same cross, don't you see grace? Grace that says, this is how much I hate sin. And at the exact same time, you come to me and all of your sin will be washed as white as snow. That's God's character. And here's what I want us to see. That it's never meant to stop with God. Here's, this is meant to be applied this is, this, is, this is our calling. This is, I want you to notice that none of this is theoretical. It's not meant to be studied in stuffy rooms with stuffy people who have their glasses down on the end of their nose and their chins high as they contemplate God. No, this is meant to be real life. In our homes. In our marriages. As we think about the poor in our community, this is meant to be lived. Leviticus 11. I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus, you shall be holy. For I am holy. Luke 6, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful. Why? Just as your Father is merciful. And here it is very clearly in seven words, Ephesians 5. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And so let's let's review. God is full of grace and mercy. Full of grace and truth. Therefore, God calls us also to build our relationships on the foundation of mercy and truth. Which means that in this culture, we've got our work cut out for us. Step back and think about what the culture is teaching us. In, in some ways, I think you could say that our culture is getting harder. We kill 2,400 babies every day in legal abortion. 
You can't do that without a hard heart. You turn on the TV and it's clear that entertainment is getting more vulgar and more violent. One thing my wife points out often is that, have you noticed, like in these superhero movies, like, it's just cool to beat up a girl now? There's a hardening happening of our culture. It's really in style to speak crudely and violently to each other. I'll just give you one example. Go on Go on, go on Facebook, but go on reputable news outlets. And look at the clickbait for these little video clips they have. Here are some, here are some headlines. And this happens, this happens in, with, with Christian organizations too. Ravi Zacharias owns Atheist Questioner. Dr. Blast Trump last mask remarks. Michael Knowles tears into the left. Kaylee welcomes Acosta back by demolishing him. It's troubling. We're getting to be more violent. Hard-hearted. But at the same time, it's like our culture is schizophrenic. Because at the same time, there's a, there's a softening happening in, in our culture. And I'm, what I mean by that is a weakening in our culture. Let me give you just one funny example. I, I found this downstairs in the dugout this past week. This is an old fan, somehow found in one of the rooms of the church. But those blades are metal. I want you to notice that guard on that fan. We would never make a fan like that. We're scared to death. Somebody might get their finger in the fan. Gone are the days in America of firing squads and public beatings and debtors' prisons. I don't know if you notice, here's how far we've gotten. I don't know if you notice in our culture, but, but you saying something, even if it's true, that hurts somebody's feelings, is considered a hate crime. Teachers in school are encouraged not to grade papers with red ink. Because red ink can be traumatic for children. Do you think that your grandparents' teachers were worried about grading with red ink and the traumatic effects it had on their students? Do you think your grandparents, your great-grandparents went around the house putting plastic covers on all the electrical outlets and, 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 and making sure that all the cabinet doors were bolted closed? Like, do you actually think your granddaddy wore a helmet on his tricycle? There's a softening that's happening in our culture. A dangerous softening that's happening in our culture. Children, children used to, even from a very young age, have serious responsibilities on farms. And, and even, sometimes in very unsafe conditions and were exploited, but in factories. Spanking's out of style. High expectations for children's out of style. Allowing kids to do just whatever they want to. That's, that's what's in style. Churches and charities giving away lots of free stuff that make their members feel really good without any accountability, without any real 
self-sacrifice, hands-on, long-term, relationship-based help. That a style. So, so here's what this means. It means that if, if we take seriously the commands about imitating God in being full of both grace and truth, we're not going to get any help from the culture. You're not going to learn that from the culture. This culture will teach you to be too soft to actually help anybody or too hard-hearted to even care. Which means that we're left with a very serious challenge. Here's the challenge. And if you actually press in to do it, it is a challenge. In a culture that tends to operate on the extremes of either all truth or all grace, the people of God are called to be like God and to be full of both. At the same time. We're called to become like Jesus, who is the very embodiment of velvet steel. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you ways that God does it. And I want to just show you some examples. And my, and my goal is that, that this, this vision of God that, that God lays out about Himself in the Bible would be beautiful to you. And you would get on your knees and pray that He would work this into your heart. Here's one of my favorite examples. This example has far-reaching implications for our ministry to the poor, our work in discipling young believers, certainly in our parenting. Here it is, Leviticus 23. I love this passage because if you go back home and you read Leviticus 23, you'll notice that verse 22 seems like it's out of place. It's, it it it's comes in as he gives details about how he wants worship conducted. How he wants the Sabbath to be celebrated. And then in verse 22, this is why we're going to see this word moreover. This is what worship looks like. Ben, this is what we're talking about. That we've got we to break down that wall between my life and my, my practical life and my spiritual life. There's no, there's no wall between those. It's just one life under Christ. So here, as he's speaking about worship, listen what he says. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land... Moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord your God. This is one of a billion examples of where we cannot improve. The greatest social scientist of modern day, who have set up a welfare state, cannot improve on the wisdom of God found in Leviticus. Leviticus 23 is teaching His people how to worship by how to harvest their fields. And notice what He says. Don't harvest to the corners. Leave the corners. Don't go over and glean, which means don't go over a second time and pick up all the little bits and pieces that were left over from the first harvest. He says, leave it. 
Leave it in the field so the poor and the alien can come and get it. I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I want you to harvest 100% of your grain and go over it a second time and make sure that all the little pieces of grain are picked up and then I want you to donate 10% of that to the food bank. That's simple, that's amazing. He wants his people to be generous with the poor. And he wants the poor to go out into the field and do the hard work of collecting the food that they've been given as a gift. Parents need to hear this. Give your kid everything they want and chances are you will raise a brat who will be bitter. On the other hand, be stingy and harsh with your kid and you'll raise a resentful jerk. Grace and truth. I, I just got back from a funeral. We had a very dear friend die this week and we traveled, Oakley and I went up to Louisville for her funeral. One of the, one of the people who spoke at her funeral told a story. It's, it's, a, it's a long story. I'll try to make it really short. It's a girl who was in our church in Louisville. She um, had made a profession of faith, dropped off the face of the planet, showed up pregnant, was removed from church membership because she refused to repent and return telephone calls. She ended up, the church did not give up on her. They continued going after her, calling her. Connie Vanderpool, my friend, was one of the people who just continued to go after her. She came back to church, repented, was restored. She had her baby, and her, she, she came home to the Vanderpool's house on, with, with, their, with her baby to live until another couple in the church who was also childless had time to, to finish their attic off so that she could have an apartment in their attic. But here's one of the stories she told about Connie. She said, Connie refused to drive me to work. She said, I'll only drive you to the bus stop. You've got to get to work on your own. And she said, through that, like, there was, there was such compassion, self-sacrificing compassion that held her accountable. And it is a beautiful story of the power of the gospel to transform a life. As much as possible. Now, every situation is different. There are disabilities. There are some people who can't go to the fields and glean, Right? But as much as possible, we want to encourage and empower, not coddle the poor. Every situation is different. Every kid is different. But, but we want to encourage and empower, but not coddle our children. Again, I don't think that we can improve on the wisdom of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Admonish the lazy. Admonish the undisciplined. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. I'm, I'm reminded of, of a, a guy that I sought to win to Christ and disciple years ago. I was so frustrated with this guy because he refused to work. He had a kid. He just refused to work. He's a grown man. He would not hold down a job. And I was getting really frustrated with him. 
And I would come and I would just confront him really harshly until one day I listened to him. Here's a guy who grew up without a daddy and who just really was just given over to self-hatred. And what I found is that he needed, he needed to be confronted, but he also needed a healthy dose of encouragement. He needed to be, the faint-hearted needed to be encouraged. He needed help with things, just simple things like, dude, you got to set an alarm clock. In fact, you got to set two of them. And you got to leave your house and not come home. Leave your house with your lunch in your hand and don't come home at the end of the day. You may not have a job, but you need to spend all day putting in applications. And don't come home to watch TV until you do. Let's talk about our relationship with other believers. And this includes family members. Look at Luke 17. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Well, that's really unpopular. But look at the heart. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, look at the, fill the heart, and returns to you seven times a day saying, I repent, forgive him. That's real love. That's a relationship that takes truth and love seriously. That's, that's Jesus' Velvet steel. And think about this in our relationship with our children. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I need to hear this text over and over and over again. It is not okay for us to let our children be disrespectful to you. You look at Genesis 16. Hagar's insubordination was ugly and wrong. Some of us need to learn to tell our children no. You know where you fall on this. You know where your temptation is. Which side you tend to go off on. Some of us learn to, to need to tell our children no. God commands it in verse 4 of Ephesians 6. We need to spank our children. But our spankings need to point our children to Christ. Honey, I'm, you lied. What does God say about lies? Proverbs chapter 12 says God hates lies. Honey, that's right. God hates lying lips. And so I'm going to need to spank you right now to remind you that God hates your sin and that your sin will end up being painful to you. But I'm going to spank you as someone who knows what it's like to lie. See, I'm tempted just the same way you are, honey, to lie so I can get out of trouble. This is why it's such good news that Jesus came to die for liars like you and me. And if you trust Him, He will give you a heart that trusts Him instead of your lies. Genesis 16 reminds me we need to hold our kids accountable. If you do that one more time, you're not going to get any ice cream. Don't you want ice cream? Stop. I promise, if you keep going, I'm not going to give you any ice cream. You keep going. One more. If I have to say it one more time, you're getting no ice cream. 
Okay, you better not spill that ice cream. I don't know who said it, but they said it exactly right. The boy gives birth to the man. The habits that we create, the character that we build in the boy, will bloom in the man. And you fast forward little Johnny and his ice cream episode, and you got Johnny, 27, still living in your basement with a part-time job, and you're still nagging him and babysitting his kid. Let me give you one more example. I hope we'll round this out and drive this home. To turn over in your Bible to Psalm 83. This is going to be crazy quick. This is one of those psalms, you read it, and you say, how in the world am I supposed to pray this? O God, do not remain quiet, do not be silent, and O God, do not be still, for behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire against your treasured ones. They have said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind. Against you they have made a covenant. We'll just skip down to verse 9. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin at the torrent of Kishon. Now, you have to go back and read Judges 4-8 through 8 to see this, but I'll just give you a, a, just a little reminder. Sisera, he ended up with a tent peg in his temples. Who was destroyed at Endor, who became... As dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb. These are folks who were, educa- uh, who were ex- executed and their heads were sent back to Gideon. And all the princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, again, captured and then executed. Who said, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, and like a flame that sets its mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Now listen, our culture will, will try to teach you how to read the Bible. And our culture will try to say, now that's not nice. Our culture will try to say, listen, we know better than God. We are more righteous than God, and God should not be talking that way. This is why we need to let God's Holy Spirit teach us to read the Bible instead of our culture. Because look at verse 15, verse 16. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. Do you see the heart behind the prayer for judgment on the enemies of God? The psalmist wants them to be saved. The psalmist wants the enemies of God who want to destroy Israel to share heaven with him. That's a heart of velvet steel. 
Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever, verse 17. And let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. Our culture is too short-sighted. He wants his enemies to turn from their stupidity and wickedness to serve the one true and living God. He wants good for his enemies. Because he has the heart of God that's full of both truth and grace. That's the heart we need. Bold and broken hearted. Zealous for God. And tender toward people. We need to imitate God. So, so think about the heart that's under this. We need to learn this from God. We need to be very slow to confront those we don't passionately love. Our God is a God of wrath. But He sheds tears long before He swings swords. Lamentations 3, He does not afflict willingly. Ezekiel 33, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Luke 13, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent her. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Let's wrap this up. It is very possible. In fact, it is likely that some people listening to this sermon today will end up in hell. But you will not go to hell unloved. And you will not go unwarned. He's full of wrath. But the cross proves he's full of grace. Why do you want to be destroyed? Turn from your sin and trust in Christ and be forgiven. Believer, we're called to imitate God who's full of grace and truth. And, and again, you know which side you fall off on. You, you know which one you need to hear from. Can, can I remind you of the power of just getting on your knees and confessing that to the Lord? God, I tend to be so strict. God, I tend to be so lax. Lord, would you cleanse me of that? And then trust in the transforming power of Jesus, not just to forgive you, but to conform you to his own image. Let's pray. Heaven. 
We know our weakness, but if we don't know our weakness, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal it. And I pray, Father, that you would give us grace to run to Jesus to fix it. You have promised us that you have predestined your people to be conformed to the image of Christ. So we pray that you would keep that promise. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton Podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.